Welcome back to Season 2 of the Aware Podcast. In this global podcast, Nikki and Sarah, your hosts, chat to inspirational guests who have all had a breakthrough moment in either life, leadership or business. We share our adventures as we talk through the moments, courage, laughter and insight. A big thank you to all our listeners and we hope that you're going to enjoy Season 2 as much as you did Season 1. Don't forget rate, review, subscribe and share to keep us moving forward. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, look, welcome back to the Aware Groups podcast. We feel very honoured and blessed today to have the amazing Erin Smith um, joining us. And today we're really going to embark on getting to know Erin and Erin's story and some of the things that have really shaped who you are today. And, um, you know, we're excited to share share you and your story and all the people you've interacted with in your life with our listeners. So welcome, Erin. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah and Nikki. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, for our listeners... Um, uh, I met Erin at a Ray Chamberlain lunch uh, here in Melbourne and um, I was just kind of, they, Ray had a lot of speakers on and Erin just really grabbed me. One, because of your just resonating empathy about trauma, but your story about trauma um, and particularly I found your story about 9-11 and, and that moment and how, as I was saying before we went on air, um, that vicarious trauma that you really discovered. So I think it was an, an amazing story, but you don't meet many people that have lived that story, that, that were there or have mm. really sat in the face 
of huge world events and and had a story to tell that was so positive afterwards too. Yeah, maybe you'd like to um, start there <laughs> on your many, many things that have happened in your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was an absolute uh, wonderful opportunity to be involved with the Ray Chamberlain Luncheon mm. and to meet people like yourself and to actually be in a room full of people passionate about supporting those that have been traumatised, whether it was through their work or other areas of their life. And, yes, I was invited along to talk about my role at that point in time with the Code 9 Foundation, which was a charity that had been established by Mark Thomas, who was my co-presenter that day, here in Victoria, really to support the wellbeing and the mental health of our first responders who had been impacted and had sustained a mental health injury due to what they've been doing to help support the communities. And when we were discussing what we were going to talk about that day and I had the amazing opportunity to be involved with Ray and, and everyone that was involved in, in putting that day on, and we started to talk about my experiences and how I'd come to be so passionate about particularly first responder mental health and wellbeing. And I said, well, actually, it was the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And often people are a bit surprised. and like, How can those attacks have happened you know, on the other side of the world? Yeah. 20 years ago, still be impacting you as a, an Australian here today. And that was where I was sharing my story of vicarious trauma. But mm. to get to the point of me being able to share that story, uh, I had to go back and explain that it was something, you know, even five years ago, I hadn't even really heard of or thought of or considered. Mm. And it really wasn't, I think I actually mentioned that day at that, that luncheon, that it wasn't really until I was right in the thick of it and experiencing the signs and symptoms and living my vicarious trauma and had potentially already then subsequently vicariously traumatised some of those around me, including my beloved husband, who I so often would use as a soundboard and share my mm. stories with. Um, it wasn't until I was right in the middle of that that I even really realised what it was and what was happening and that I had actually myself been profoundly impacted by the trauma because I had listened to and become the storyteller and almost yes. a secret keeper in many ways. Mm, very much. All of these incredible first responders that I had met in the 15 to 20 years after those attacks. And what started out way back in 2004, 2005, is what was meant to be as an academic and with my little nerd hat on, <laughs> was meant to be a one-off project. And I was yeah. just going to go and speak to a, a couple of these first responders five years on about how they were travelling and, you know, what their reflections were from that day. And what really came about from that was this incredibly powerful and richly descriptive takeaway message that this impact was huge and it was going mm. to continue because you could tell I spoke to nearly 60 responders back then and already they were very traumatised. Many of them already had physical injuries. Some of them were developing their illnesses that would be associated and later on directly linked to their exposure mm. at the 9-11 site. And sadly, over the years, as I've gone back every five years to talk to that same cohort, I've seen them decline in so many ways in both their physical health and their mental health. Yeah. And sadly, we've lost some of that cohort, whether it's to 9-11 related cancer and illness or 9-11 related mental health injury. Mm. And so taking the time to listen and, and then 
And I think I might have mentioned on that day as well that I not only crossed the line between researcher and research participant, I fully just jumped across it and that line no longer existed. And, yeah. and these people who were meant to be just my research participants and first responders on the other side of the world have become a huge part of my friendship network and some of them have become some of my dearest friends. And so that in itself is hugely uh, preemptive of the vicarious trauma that I've now gone on to experience. But someone actually asked me a really interesting question the other day when we were talking about vicarious trauma, and they said, would you take it back? Knowing what you know now and having lived yeah. the experience that you've lived, would you do it differently or would you not do it at all? And I said, absolutely not. I don't think I'd change anything. Yeah. Because for all the impact that I've experienced, the privilege of sharing those stories and getting those voices yeah. out there has far outweighed any impact on myself. And the I relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I mean, it's, I think I would, I would hope that I could be better prepared for it and recognise it better than I did. Yep. Uh, particularly being one that was supporting mental health and wellbeing of others, I mm. didn't really recognise it within myself. That's that normal really though, isn't it? That is normal, isn't it? Yeah. So that's sort of, you know, my long 20-year story in, in, a, in a nutshell in that, yeah. you know, what started out as a very small project has ended up being a very consuming part of my life and it's changed not only my professional career but it's changed who I am at my yeah. core as a person as well. Yeah. Do you think the, um, uh, the trauma they experience not that trauma ever really is so res resolved as such, but the impact is so great. And because it was such a world global, I mean, game changer, mm. that they couldn't recover better? They couldn't escape from in it your, in yeah. any way because it was yeah. such a not only life-changing mm. but world-changing mm. experience. Where, where though the PTSD you know, you can see some improvement over time. But yeah. from what I'm hearing is the impact was huge and they actually deteriorating over time rather than improving. Mm. Is there some correlation yeah. between the magnified experience? Look, I think I think there is certainly is, and it's very interesting because we've just sort of come out of that 20-year anniversary, wow. which in the first instance made me think, wow, yeah, how has it been 20 years? feels mm. like yesterday that I sat here and watched those towers fall on mm. my TV. But... What we and what's become more obvious to me as time has gone on, and particularly as I've become closer and closer to some of these responders and their family members, is that each time that anniversary comes around, and I'm sure there are survivors and family members of other terrorist attacks who feel exactly mm -hmm. the same way, that that anniversary actually opens wounds. Yeah. And in some ways, many of my friends, particularly in some of the, the responders that I've got to know quite well, actually become, they, they notice that their anxiety and their mental health injuries mm. are really exacerbated in the lead up to the anniversary. And as you know, there is just images and, and media no. all over the place. And they just gratuitously replay those images of the tower, of the planes mm. crashing into the towers mm. and the towers collapsing. And I understand mm. why the media do that. But yeah. I've actually reached out to a number of media outlets this year. And just as an example, I was contacted by a major Australian media outlet mm. in this coming up to the 20th anniversary this year and asking if they would be able to interview me. And I said, I'm absolutely happy to do that as long as you don't play that graphic, gratuitous mm. imagery of yeah. people getting killed. Mm. And they refused to do that. So I refused to do the interview. Good on and I you. Thought, we have to find a way of more sensitively 
remembering and reflecting because every Absolutely. time and one of my dearest friends has actually someone I met after the 9-11 terrorist attacks she lost her firefighter husband in the South Tower and her name's Marion mm-hmm. and I remember her saying as well that every time they see that image those footage yeah. of the planes yeah. crashing and the towers coming down she mm-hmm. sees Dave get murdered over and over and over yeah. again no, people don't think about the the personalized impact and and I was reading some of your um, you know literature and some of your commentary before today and you know I was thinking about Marion's son and you know imagine seeing that footage every day so as you know as the wife but also as a mother and you know a mother of three children also feeling that ongoing trauma for her child and for the loss. Oh. And I, rem- I, I rem- you know, really resonated with me that, um, you know, you talk about how when Marion's son was young and he used to say, I just want to, I want to go to heaven and I want to go and see dad. And, mm. and imagine that life-changing, not only that day, but that every year, that footage, every documentary that came out, that, you know, that really does create, and I agree with you, there has to be a more empathetic way in talking about the impact of worldwide events as opposed to, you know, the, the graphic nature of it. And I think there are very few other instances where something as catastrophic and tragic as the 9-11 terrorist attacks yeah. have played out live across the world. So, so yeah. many other families um, who've lost loved ones and friends in terrorist attacks is, is horrible and tragic as that is. Mm. They haven't had to see it live and they haven't mm. had to be reminded of that every anniversary because absolutely. that imagery is played live over and over. And so, yeah. yeah, I absolutely think, we're, and we're basically re-traumatising people every we time are. that that happens. And that's yeah. something that I've really come to be quite passionate about is that trying to protect those that have been impacted mm-hmm. by this ongoing onslaught to their mental health and wellbeing by, by really feeling the need to keep playing that horrid imagery. Yeah. You know, we all know what happened. We've all seen it. Absolutely. In a more sensitive way to, to remember yeah. And I think, Erin, you know, if I can, if, if you don't mind, just share. I was in um, Christchurch uh, when the um, massacre occurred in Christchurch. And I was in, you know, reasonably close proximity, um, you know, close enough to see the police running past the, the store that I was locked in, um, running to address that. Now, I didn't lose a loved one that day. But I still, every anniversary, every time a possum jumps on my roof, I experience in every part of my being how vulnerable and out of control I felt. So 
because of the bang noise because you're hearing the bang noise because we're hearing the gunshots and just thinking about that and i play and in that case i was playing a role of having to protect a group of people and i look at that and think if i'm experiencing that i find it inhumane for what we're doing to the direct you know, to the families that are impacted by this, that the people that have that survivor guilt from they weren't in weren't in the towers that day, you know that that's that's an unforgivable humanitarian decision mm. I think we've made, and I really I really admire you for saying no to, um, you know, doing an interview for the twentieth anniversary because it so demonstrates your authenticity. And, you know, that level of empathy because you have become part of this. How do you think we oh. move it from a story, you know, that that um, that most people are watching mm. to a, a life event that other people have experienced? Do you, do you have any answers about how we can shift that mm. focus? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the issues with... The 9-11 terrorist attacks too is that it was and as Nikki you were just explaining and you said well I wasn't directly involved but you were you were right mm-hmm. there and you lived it and you were part of this and but even people that watched it around yes. the world and heard about it and read the media and saw images uh, have been collectively traumatized we've seen mm-hmm. that with bushfires we've seen that with yeah. other traumatic events and particularly with 9-11 I think it became a globally experienced trauma yeah. so in yeah. a way it's part of so many people's stories and Mm. I don't know really how you sort of move from that in a safe way Mm. without almost seeming in some ways to to be unempathetic Mm. uh you know Mm. we want people to share their stories and understand but at some point yes we need to not move on because I every speak every person I speak to after 9-11 says I'll never move on you can't move Mm. on from something that's happened that's that traumatic but I think we can try to find ways. And some of the people that have been involved in my research, for example, have found mm-hmm. astonishing ways for post-traumatic growth. And I look at that as yeah. a really um, aspirational kind of thing. 100%. You can live through something quite horrific and mm-hmm. tragic and life-altering, mm-hmm. but come out the other end of it mm-hmm. and really re-examine yourself and your own life and how you can contribute to mm-hmm. society. And some of these responders, and I know other people around the world as well, have gone on after experiencing extreme trauma to totally change their outlook and to do different yeah. things, whether it's, you know, uh, contributing to charities, whether it's, you know, yeah. assisting in NGO organisations or just sharing yeah. their story. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just powerful to even share your own story so that other people know that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think... I haven't really answered your question, but... No, no, no you have I, I don't think there is an answer. I don't right? think there is an answer, but maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a a better balance around the imagery and more around stories of impact and and stories of, you know, I just had my first child and I remember him sitting on the floor in his bouncer when the first image came up and I never forget that was the moment I think I've held my a, a child so closely because it created a sense of vulnerability and maybe maybe it's not an answer but part of a strategy is to recognize that you know in life as well as what we watch from the sidelines where there's all, always points of vulnerability mm. Mm. i'd like to flesh out the 
post-traumatic growth because I think that's something we don't talk enough about. Exactly. That not everyone who has a traumatic experience and a colleague at, at my clinic described for my own personal reasons, she said, your person has post-traumatic growth. And I'd actually not even heard of that. 20 years as a psychologist, what does that say? But I hadn't actually heard of that. And I I sat and really processed that. And I thought, why aren't we talking about, you know, a positive end result? Because we always talk Mm. about the the stress. Yes. But there can be growth. Mm. And and you can uh, contribute in in ways you never would or find strengths and skills that you never knew you had. Um, and maybe it's about looking at that as well and saying, let, let's look at the growth from that experience or yeah. from huge traumatic experiences like the bushfires and, yep. and even the droughts and even COVID moving forward. How, how do we educate people on thinking about post-traumatic growth yes. um, yeah. as, as a positive outcome? Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting um, thing to think about because, ironically, I was meant to be going back to New York to mm. do my 20th year anniversary, so my, you know, the ongoing research yeah. analysis, but obviously due to COVID, I couldn't go back. So that plan is, is on hold at the moment, but I certainly will go back. Mm. But interestingly enough, I had been thinking and something that had been really impacting me was that I'm telling these stories and it's really powerful to share them, but how long do I go on doing that in terms yeah. of, um, you know, just sharing the, the almost the negative side of things and I thought for me personally to be able to move on from this and to really help with my vicarious traumatization I needed to put almost some boundaries around what I was doing and then almost put an end point on it and so yeah. working with my mental health professionals I actually decided that right the 20 year anniversary would be a really nice milestone to wrap it up I'll go back mm-hmm. one final time and mm. see how everyone was at that, that point in time. But mm. what I decided to do and what I will be doing is instead of going back and reflecting on their mental health and yeah. their physical health and how terrible things potentially are, I'm going to go back in a positive mindset and ask them about how have things improved for you and how mm-hmm. have you experienced post-traumatic growth? Because I know some of them, and some of them didn't even realise it in themselves until I was talking to them about yeah. it. Um, but... I've heard a really lovely analogy, and I, the name escapes me at the moment, so I'm not going to try to say what it is and, and get it wrong, but I'm sure people will be able to look it up. But it's this beautiful Japanese idea of that when something breaks, so say a beautiful piece mm. of pottery breaks, instead of just mm. throwing it out like so many of us do, you know, something breaks, you get rid of it. Yep. They actually put it back together again using gold. Mm. And those yep. beautiful lines of gold, which really highlight the scars in this breaking, um, broken piece of art make it Mm. even more beautiful and potentially Mm. even stronger Mm. and that really I love that idea because I often Mm. talk about how sharing all these stories and my vicarious trauma left scars on my heart and I would never want to lose those because I actually feel like they have made me stronger Mm. and a better person When I feel close to that I could become eager but too scared to climb Wanted to please my friends, but it felt like the end of myself. I was shut down and I drained out. I was lost, so I had to change. Yeah, I shook off all the bad vibes, cut me loose from the pettiness. I really want to be those that have been involved in my research, the opportunity to reflect on that from a positive point of view. Like 20 years on, 
Mm. How have you grown as a person and what has been your most traumatic Mm. growth Mm. um, considering you lived through this horrific event? Mm. And I think that will end the story on a much more positive note. Um, So that's my hope anyway. Yeah, and I think that symbolism is just so appropriate for this situation is because in some way you mend post-trauma and but you look different you look different but it's how you know some of those cracks we fill a little bit with more gold and others just need a little bit and I think you know I'm I'm a you know I love my whiteboard so I'm all about imagery and I know you know just saying that now I've been to New York in, in 2004 and 2018 and each time I felt different experiences and just that whole ideal of recalling that because I adore New York would be having something like that would actually resolve mm. some of those some of those feelings and I think it's you know, it is a good way because I was reading about the where's your end point and, um, you know, way of moving it forward. I'm just, you know, sorry, I'm just going to say it, but I'm thinking about those relationships. When the longitudinal study completes itself, do you see those relationships changing or are they now solid and separate from your study? I just got goosebumps when you said that because that's been one of my biggest concerns because I didn't protect myself and became friends with so many of these people and I've now known them for the better part of 20 years it's a long time it's a long time what happens when and I have been really fearful of actually saying to them you know what this is going to be the last time this will be the last part of the project are they going to be worried that I don't care anymore, that mm. I've lost interest in their story, mm. that it's no longer important? So I really am concerned about the way that I frame that, and that's why this idea of putting it in a more positive approach. Yeah. Um, it probably helps me sleep a bit better at night as well. Yeah, because yeah. if I think if I went back in and just did the initial, the, the subsequent follow-up and I found that more of them are dying and more of them are sick yeah. and they're still mentally um, healthful, their mental health is impacted. I don't know if I could walk away. But I think I need to make it clear to them, uh, yes, they've profoundly changed my life. And mm. so even though the research project may end and mm. my feelings of responsibility from that storytelling perspective might mm. end, these relationships won't. And no. they'll continue to be a really important part of my personal growth and my support network. And, um, yeah, I just couldn't fathom life without some of these people in it now. So I think yeah. that's one of the really beautiful um, things that's happened that I just didn't expect that most research yeah. projects don't bring about. Usually you speak to an a interviewee once and that's it. But with this repeated exposure and then definitely over years getting to know their families and their children and then seeing the ripple impact on them as well. Mm. And you're brought into their homes. Well, you're part of the family. You are. You're a family member. 20 years, you're you're, you're like the auntie from Australia. I mean, (laughs) you are. I mean, they'll have kids that have grown up with you being in their lives in in some manner or form. So, But I I do think, and I, I would be quite excited, and I'd love to touch base after you do this, to find out what happened with that shift and what was the focus of conversations and did it free you all from the moment? Did it allow a new energy to come into the relationships by ending that phase? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. And I think there are certainly a number that I am probably more closely connected to Mm. and that was almost that real closeness was definitely influencing my 
vicarious traumatisation because yeah. I became so invested in them and so concerned yeah. about them. And when the phone rang at 3 a.m. in the morning and it was them calling because they were having a bad day, mm. it was I struggled with finding that line between mm. being someone who was invested in sharing their stories and had become their friends but also then having to say and finding it within myself. When, when you've got someone calling you and you know that some of these people don't reach out to many people at all, yes. so it's a real honour to, to be trusted in that way. But then to then acknowledge I'm not a mental health professional and I'll do whatever I can to support you in this moment, but I think you really need to go and speak to X, Y, Z, whatever is the best support option for yeah. them. And that became a key lesson that I learned, and I think it's something that we can all take away, particularly now during COVID when some of our yes. family members and friends and even colleagues might be struggling. Mm. Uh, and when we're talking about asking, are you okay, it's not about expecting you to be a mental health professional and then sit down and solve all their problems. It's just about opening up a line of communication where you can then suggest, have you thought about talking to this person? Have you maybe thought about yes. doing this? And I think that's a really powerful thing for us to all realise as well is that you know, if someone is struggling, there are little things that we can do. We don't need to solve all their problems for no, them. No. But just maybe be there to help guide them in the right mm. direction. Yeah. Did you recognise you were, you were suffering PTSD? No, not at all. I, I, It's quite interesting. I didn't... It wasn't until recently when I talked to, to mm. Sarah about it. She knows all my all my inner feelings. It's really bad. Um, <laughs> but I think what I actually didn't acknowledge the impact that it had on me until all these years later, you know, the, the taking on role of protector, taking on, you know, and addressing the impact. I mean, getting on the – what I had focused on was – the, the right in front of me, which was getting on the plane the next day and seeing people with, you know, clear wounds as a result of, you know, you know broken bones, um, blood, trauma, clothes with blood on them. That's what I noticed. But it wasn't until probably really even when we started creating AWARE was saying, actually, there's so many gaps that I didn't notice and, and we all don't notice the impact mm. until our emotion shows and then we go, hang on, where's that coming from? Yeah, it's so interesting. And I know even with my – and one of the things I've been really looking at at the moment and I've love to get your ideas whether it's now or later but as i think it's becoming more recognized that those of us with vicarious trauma can also end up with ptsd yeah 100%. which is something i had never considered before mm. but when i sat down and really started to learn more about vicarious traumatization and realized that in many ways particularly physiologically it actually mimics yeah. the, the signs and symptoms of being physically traumatized or yes. primarily traumatized and so I was having the nightmares, the panic attacks, mm -hmm. the anxiety. I was very emotional. Um, you know, I would wake up not being able to breathe because I'd had nightmares that I was on buried under the rubble. But even yeah. behavioural changes, like mm -hmm. I noticed even here in Australia, um, if a plane flies low overhead, I crouch down and look up. There's an instinctive, mm -hmm. fearful response mm -hmm. from that noise. And whether yeah. that's because I've just been, you know, I've watched and heard and listened to that footage yeah. over and over and over of those planes coming in. But I'm also, like, I'm an avid traveller and I've never had any concerns, but mm. particularly over the past sort of um, you know, few years leading into COVID when we still could travel, I mm. became more and more anxious, not fearful yeah. about flying, but anxious. My husband will tell you, like, I can't go into crowded events like a concert or something and we never listen to the encore. 
because I have to be up and out before the mass of people start to, because I don't like the idea of being stuck. And there are all these little things that I can't attribute to anything else. And when I did speak to my psych about it, they're all... They're all parts mm. of this post-traumatic response to what you have mm. you know, taken on board and witnessed, and it's yeah. the cost of bearing witness. Mm. And that mm. really resonated with me, the way he spoke about that. It's the cost of bearing witness. Mm. I and, love that I think, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good way to articulate it because even just when I was, you know, reading, you know, some of your commentary before today, just, you know, it's, I've, I've underlined it about 14 times in in the article I was reading in terms of that vicarious trauma because it really captured that point of what, what mm. you felt. It sort of put it into and and validated that it's actually a feeling and it's a real feeling and that it is associated to, to what you've been exposed to. It's so subtle too, isn't it? We spoke previously off air about the aha moment. Recognising I had been vicariously traumatised came about purely by happenstance. I was had been at a major conference and presented material that I had presented many, many times and knew off by heart. Mm-hmm. And I always ended my presentations with this slide that was a photo of Marion and her husband Dave and mm-hmm. their son Aidan. And it was my prompt to thank Marion because yeah. it was Marion initially sharing her story that motivated me to share the stories of others, but also yeah. my prompt to thank all the first responders. And on that yeah. particular day, I just started crying. Mm. Hadn't expected it. The tears just started. I was embarrassed. I mumbled through my thank yous and, and got off the stage only to find people all around me in the audience were crying as well. Mm. And it just so happens that the person who followed me and spoke next was a psychologist, Dr. Saab Johal. And mm. he actually, one of the first things he said was, thank you, Erin, for showing the impact that doing mm. what we do can have on us and that vicarious trauma. And it was a light bulb moment for me because mm. I had never yeah. really thought yeah. that way. And when, yeah. I, when I spoke to him earlier this year, actually, and, and let him know, he goes, I had no idea that what I said had such an impact. Mm. I said, isn't it mm. funny? These things that just mm-hmm. happen are these can be these really pivotal moments for us. And But even then when I recognised what it was, and spoke and worked with my psychologist about it, I still felt this shame and guilt. Like, how dare I? I wasn't there. How Mm, dare I say that I've been impacted or that this has influenced my life? Mm. Um, And so it was really hard to work past that feeling as well. And now Mm. understanding vicarious trauma a lot. That's when Nikki was talking to me, when we were talking about having you and we have someone coming on who was uh, running the Boston Marathon when the bomb went off. And, of course, uh, Mark and Julie Wallace, good friends that I talked about too, who lost their daughter through a terrorist attack. And and we were just talking about that. And Nikki, she's kind of just turns around and goes, oh, yeah, I was in New Zealand when the terrorist attack. And I'm going, you what? And the way she told it was like she'd been in New Zealand on a shopping trip, like the neutral Mm. way that Mm. she expressed 
And I just looked and I said, how terrifying. And you could see it dawning on her face. Yeah. It, it was actually. It was really terrifying. Because you don't give yourself permission. You that's a protect, is that a protective thing for you, though, that, you know, yeah. you sort of play it down a little bit because very you don't really so. want to dig into it? Yeah, and mm. I think, too, it's also, it is very much a protector approach. It's the same as I used humour for, mm. for the same yeah same purpose um, as do a lot of us. But it was also more, I think, that that sense of I didn't have a right. You know, mm. I didn't have a right to feel this way. That's I, what I felt. Yeah, and I remember when I came home and I saw my husband and I just melted into his arms and cried. Um, and it was at that point that I, I, I kind of hid away for a bit because I didn't want to take ownership for um, going, but I was just in the country. I was around the corner. I wasn't there, but it wasn't mm. exactly until we were having the conversation that I let that armour down and went, okay, yeah, I wasn't directly, it didn't, I wasn't injured, but I was injured from being in that environment. Mm, that's what she said. Yeah. She said, but I wasn't, I didn't actually see him. I could just hear the shots. Yeah. And, um, and I was looking at her thinking, you were locked down, you, were in, you had all these people that you had to care for, you didn't know where it was, you could see the police running everywhere, no one had any idea. Mm. And, and I think you can own that and say, yeah. oh, I was traumatised. But I think that's with vicarious trauma. Mm. We actually don't know with vicarious trauma no. if we have ownership, yeah. if we're allowed to say, yes, that affected yeah. me too, without feeling mm -hmm. that it uh, minimalises first people who have been yes. impacted yes. but it sneaks up too yeah it does like you don't realize as you did mm -hmm. i'm not realizing i'm traumatized because mm. i'm a very strong capable person yes. and i've chosen to do this yeah. until i'm standing on stage and then i'm crying and i don't understand why anymore yeah yeah it's mm. just as you said sarah about that ownership like mm. um i didn't want to take ownership of the feelings i was having because i felt like i was yeah in some way then minimizing the experience of those who were 100%. really impacted mm. yeah mm. um and so many other people that i've spoken to and, and since then it actually motivated me to go out and do a research project that's just about to be published actually mm. and i spoke to about 60 qualitative researchers across the world who had mm. done similar research to me who had done uh interviews with people who had been involved in disasters and really tragic yeah. events and without fail every single one of those people i spoke to mm. indicated that yes they identified that they had been vicariously traumatized mm. And for many of us who've been working in this space for quite a while now, uh, we, we reflect back and think we didn't, we never even even thought about protecting ourselves. No. Back then. You know, mm. it just wasn't even spoken about. Whereas now, no. all of my PhD students, for example, mm. right from the get go, I'm so aware of it and really mm. promoting that they look after themselves to the point mm. that if they are going to be doing interviews with people who have been who are vulnerable in some capacity um yeah. go in pairs don't do it on your own yeah. and one of the big things we learned for example after the black saturday bushfires was to not to, try not to and it's something that i personally learned with 9 11 is try not to do interviews in people's homes yeah it's just that intimacy that's involved with yeah. that and you mm. I don't know, I know some of the most impactful mm. and moving um, experiences that I've had with my responders and their families was when I was invited into their yes. homes and some of those responders, you know, shared with me their uniforms. You know, some of them had never brought them out of the Ziploc bag since that day, but yeah. they would bring them out and the smell that would come out of that mm. and just yeah. seeing, physically seeing the oxygen machines in their houses and the medication sitting mm. on the bench and just the visible impact of trauma in their everyday yeah. life.
Mm. I think that really impacted to my level of vicarious traumatization mm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Erin, it's been um, it's been a been we've a we've, uh, we've taken a lot of your time up. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just a, more than an, happy. <laughs> an incredible topic. I'm just thinking two of psychologists and psychiatrists, and we we talk a lot about vicarious mm. trauma because I think there's some research that um, just saying the word depression over and over again can alter your mood state. Yeah. So I think there's a huge area, and I, I'd love to uh, read your research when it's published. Mm. Um, oh, and maybe yeah, have you back on talking about the results. And, um, yeah, that and maybe what yeah. can we do better? You know, it's always about... It's one thing to discover the issue. It's another thing to find uh, how we make it safer for people Absolutely. like yourself to go out and collect these stories and find these mm. truths. And for 20 years to say it's not over for these people. Mm. Yeah. You know, we've all moved on, but they're still struggling with the, the effects. Same with, um, you know, Black Black Saturday, same with the, the bushfires a couple of years ago, Absolutely. and same with COVID for a lot of countries, mm. particularly. But it's been a real pleasure. It has. It's been Aaron, oh, it's Thank been you for having me. Yeah. And thank you for letting me interrupt your lovely lunch with uh, grabbing your email at, at uh, Oh, Ray's. no, it's an absolute, an absolute <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> no. Like a little group. <laughs> <laughs> a lovely thing, <laughs> so much it's it's mm. been phenomenal mm. and you know we really want to keep in touch and you know i think it would be great to hear about you know some of those growth and you know where where people are today and how this is really you know your involvement and your being their their voice in a lot of occasions has helped their own personal growth as well and so we'd love to stay in touch have you got any ideas when you can get back to new york well, I'm hoping, and it's interesting, are we still reporting in terms of the podcast or can I say yeah. something off? Oh, off no, no, we can, we can edit this down. Yeah, thank you end. so much, Erin. Yeah, thanks, Erin. Yes, yay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can come back and, and put in a proper Oh, too funny. We just jumped off that podcast so quickly to have a good gossip afterwards, didn't we? And we're not going to tell you what we talked about. We'll get Erin back on to talk about that further. Again, um, our topics are really thought-provoking and vicarious trauma, post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth are definitely areas so many of us can reach into and understand and her level of self-awareness is in a growth trajectory um, and it's so thrilling to see people look deep within and understand themselves at a deeper level so that they can perform at a higher level. Erin Smith is an Associate Professor for Disaster and Emergency Responses at the Edith Cohen University and you can contact her if you wish at erin.smith at ecu.edu.au A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to the Aware Podcast and we really hope you enjoyed our guest's insight and the little quiz at the end just for a bit of fun. Music for the Aware Podcast is by Tape Machine featuring LFA. The song title is This Is Who I Am. If you would like to be a guest or contact us regarding the Aware platform, please email awarearcgroup at gmail.com. That's awarearcgroup at gmail.com. We are Nikki Mackey and Sarah Godfrey. See you next time.